morning. My name is Matt. I'm part of the preaching team here at Westside. Uh, awesome to have you along with Chad. I want to say welcome here, uh, whether you're a longtime Westsider or just in off the street, as he said. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we are in, we're still in our series working through the letter to the Romans. We're at about the two-year mark, just about. Still in part five, which we've called the practice. We're getting really, really close to the end now. A couple more weeks left and we're done. We're through Romans. Uh, I've enjoyed this series a great deal. Turn to Romans chapter 15. We are going to take a run at verses 14 to 33 this morning. 20 verses, no big deal. Uh, we'll get through this in about 10 minutes. So it should be fine. Um, yeah, let me pray for us, and then we will jump right into it. Father, I, I just want to come before you, God, and just say thank you. Lord, it's on days like today it's, um, that, that we just recognize your grace in our lives, your mercy, God, your, your mercy that's everywhere, your abundant mercy, your steadfast love, God, and we recognize as we come before you today and as we open your word, Lord, that we have nothing that you have not given us, God, that we are nothing without you, we are dust, and yet you have created us in your image, in your likeness, and we are valuable because you love us. So could, God, I just, I pray today we come before you boldly, God, with joy, and we just ask that you would speak. We ask that by your spirit, you would empower this time, empower the preaching of your word, God, and that you would move and you would change us a little more into your likeness today. God, I pray that you would remove distraction from this place. I pray that I wouldn't be a distraction to my brothers and sisters here and, and to those who need to come to know you today. But God, I pray that your word, your words to us would just be, they would be heralded well, and they would, be, they would be received, God, in, in hearts that are good soil this morning. We love you, Lord. We need you desperately more than we could ever, ever express. In your name, amen. If you were here last week, you remember that we, we, we begun Romans chapter 15 and we finished in chapter 13 with a really, really beautiful benediction that Paul prayed over the saints in Rome. Let me read it for you. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Paul prayed this. He said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now that beautiful, beautiful, hope-filled prayer that Paul prayed marks a small transition in the letter. Okay, he, he's kind of, he's finished the main body of his writing, right? The, the, the main thrust of what he's wanted to say, he's now said it. That's been the, the, the chapters 1 through 15 all the way through. And now he's about to turn his attention to saying goodbye. He's about to do that, but he's not quite there yet. We're kind of in a little bit of an in-between sort of place this morning where he's, he's finished the main body. He's going to start saying goodbye, but he's got a few things that he still wants to say. A couple things that overarch everything else he said so far. See, what he wants is he wants the Roman Christians to feel his heart. He wants them to notice his disposition toward them, why he does what he does as an apostle in the first place. There's a lot going on in these 20 verses, and because we're only here for a week, uh, we're going to leave a lot out. Um, that, that's for sure. But essentially what we can do is we can break this text down into two sections. Okay, first we have in verses 14 to 22, we have Paul's description of his own ministry. 
And then in verses 23 to 33, we have Paul making a couple of requests of the Christians in Rome. He's asking them for stuff. So let, let's get right into this text. As We're going to kind of this morning hold both those sections together as best we can and see what we can learn about our own ministries and our own calls as disciples through these two sections. Um, so we'll get right into it, and I'll kind of show you where we're going a little bit more in detail as we get the ball rolling. So have a look at our first verse. If you have your Bible uh, or your app or whatever, please look at it. As I have said before, it's always extremely encouraging to see you reading along with me. So Romans chapter 15 Verse 14, Paul writes this. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now this, this first verse is a really interesting verse. It's a really interesting thing for Paul to say. I don't know if you're picking up on it, but it's interesting because, see, Paul, right now, is getting to the end of a long letter where what he's essentially just been doing is all the things he just said the Roman Christians don't need. Right? I mean, that's what Romans is. He's, he's imparting knowledge to them, which he just said, you have all knowledge. He's teaching and instructing them, which he says, you're able to do this for each other. So it almost feels at first as you read through this, like, this is kind of a throwaway line. Like, Paul doesn't really mean what he's saying here. This is kind of what we do uh, when, when you have something really important to say to somebody, but you're afraid they won't really listen to you, so you want to massage their ego just a little bit, right? You're kind of, I know you don't need me to tell you this, but I do this with my wife all the time, right? It's just the truth. But I actually don't think that's what Paul is doing at all. I think this is completely genuine on the part of Paul. I think he really believes this, is, which is why we have our next verse. Have a look at it, Romans 15, 15. He says this, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Paul's saying, look, I know I haven't told you anything that you don't already know. What I have done, however is remind you of some of the implications of the gospel that you already believe. Okay, you already hold these truths, and I'm just trying to help you unpack them. Paul's saying, that's what Paul's saying, and I think there's something really important that's implicit in this for us today. 2014, downtown Vancouver, Westside Church. I think there's something very important in what Paul's saying here for us. This posture of humility and this posture of mutual respect that Paul has for the Christians in Rome reminds us of something that's true for all Christians. If you're here and you're in Jesus, this is reminding us of something that's true for you. And that is the fact that every single one of us in Christ has the Spirit of God indwelling in us. That's amazing. That, that's really, really good news, right? The Bible tells us that there's one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of old. In other words, there are no second-tier callings in God's church. No second-tier callings. If you're a Christian, then you are a son or a daughter of God. You have an inheritance waiting for you, and when Jesus, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. I just want, want you to let that sink in for a second. I mean, we cheer for the World Cup announcement. That's good news. 
that's really, really, I think, I just think we need to feel that a little bit today. I want to help us just to remind us of who we are in Jesus. And I want to push on this a little bit more uh, because, 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 every, because I want to see ourselves in this text. In our next two verses, they really help us see ourselves. Have a look at them. Romans 15, 15 to 16. Paul says, again, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He goes on, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that... The offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Notice one thing here. Notice Paul's identification of himself. He just told us that he's two things. He told us that he's one, a minister of Christ Jesus, and in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So Paul calls himself a minister and a priest. Now, because it's Paul, right, it's the apostle Paul, doesn't get much bigger than that. He wrote a large chunk of the scripture. It's easy for us to say, well, okay, that's, that's Paul. That's a unique situation. Okay, it's fine for him to say, I'm a minister and a priest of the gospel of God. But, I mean, this guy wrote letters that contain the very words of God. Trust me, you can read my emails. Nobody's wondering if my email should be included in the Bible. I promise you that. Right? There was a unique situation. Paul and the rest of the apostles uniquely laid the foundation for Jesus' church, and that's all true. Right? The church has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There is something unique happening there, but that's not the entire truth. See, Paul's identification of himself in these two verses is not unique to him. This is true for all of us in Jesus if you're here and you're a Christian, then you too are a minister and a priest of the gospel of God. That's, that's what you are. That's who you are. Have a look at 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. We're speaking of all Christians. Peter writes this. You yourselves, this includes you, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every single son and daughter of God fulfills the same roles that Paul just identified with himself. Again, feel this. When Jesus died, the massive curtain that had separated God's people from his presence in the Holy of Holies, you know what happened to that curtain? Torn, top to bottom. Not by a man, by the hand of God himself. There is nothing that separates you in Jesus from God. Not your sin, not what you've carried in here with you this morning not what you're living with, not what's in your past, not even what's in your future. Positionally, you are perfect. You are a partaker of the divine nature of God. That's your inheritance. That's who you are in Jesus. And you don't want to know what your life is for. You want to know what your life is for. You want to know what you're doing here. Your life's calling is to be a minister and a priest of the gospel of God. It's who you are. 
All right, so, so what does this actually mean? What does it mean? We don't use the word priest a lot, right? We don't really get what it means. We, it, it's not a word that's really familiar to us. So, so what are we saying? What, what are we supposed to do as ministers and priests of God? What's our role? I know, that, I know that there are a lot of people actually at Westside that come from Catholic backgrounds. I meet you all the time. Uh, you come to our classes and, and through baptism and other, lots of things. I meet you everywhere. And you, you, have a, you have a Catholic background. So you hear the word priest, and immediately in our minds we go to, okay, there's somebody that mediates at some level between man and between God. There's some sort of mediation happening there. But we know... That that's, we don't need any man, any other man or woman to mediate between us and God. Why not? Because we have a high priest in Jesus who mediates for us every hour of every day. It's why 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and there is how many? One mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So then why does the Bible call us priests? What's our function? Well, both Romans 15 and 1 Peter 2.5 tell us the same thing, speaking of our role as priests. Our role as priests and ministers of the gospel of God is to present to God an offering. An offering. We bring a sacrifice. We bring an offering. Priests always did that, and it's the same today, which begs the question again, what's our offering? Have a look at Romans 15, verse 15 uh, to 16, the second half of verse 15, where Paul expands on his priestly ministry by saying this. He says, Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. I read that fast because we already read it. So that, so that, so this is the purpose behind his priesthood. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What's the offering that we bring to God as ministers and priests? Our offerings are the lives of people sanctified, made holy by God's Spirit. This is not just true for Paul. This is true for every single Christian alive today. And this goes all the way back to the premise statement in Romans 12, verse 1, that we've looked at over the last several weeks. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, big transition in the letter, by the mercies of God, because of the gospel, everything we've seen up to now, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's saying, in light of the gospel, we as ministers and priests worship by bringing him a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is our lives. It's our offering. That's the sacrifice we bring to God. Okay, but how specifically? I just want to keep drilling down here so we can get more and more practical. How specifically do our lives become a sacrifice? I mean, what, what, what makes a difference between someone who lives their life not as a living sacrifice to God, not as an act of spiritual worship, and somebody who lives obediently as a priest who's bringing God an offering? What's the difference? The answer, as we've been seeing over the last couple months, Specifically in the verse in front of us today and through the entire book of Romans is that the lives that we live become acts of worship as we are sanctified, made holy by the Spirit of God, which is evidenced in us by our obedience to God's call in our lives. I mean, this is the whole point. 
obedience. Your obedience to God's call on your life, the big things, the small things, everything in between, that is the point. It's why in chapter 12 we took a break from just unpacking the theology, the doctrine, and we went to, okay, now let's talk about, talk about the lives that we live every day. How does this work itself out? It's obedience. This is the entire point of our lives. Our obedience to Jesus and the obedience to Jesus of the people around us, it's why we're here. That's the worship that we bring to God. And in that worship, God is glorified. And I just want to remind you, as Paul said, you know, he wanted to remind the Roman Christians, I want to remind you that God has a call on your life today. This moment. Right now. July long weekend, but it's still June, which is really strange. God has a call on your life right now. He is calling you to something. What is it? Your obedience to that call is the, hear me, the only thing that matters. No matter what you become, no matter what you accomplish, no matter what you manage to gather while you're here on this planet, it will all burn like straw if it doesn't flow from and flow to your obedience to Jesus. It's worthless. It means nothing. Now, we're using the word obedience a lot, which can be problematic because we don't really like the word obedience. It's not, a, it's not an exciting word to us. It's not real popular. So before we go any further, let's clarify. What do we mean by obedience? See, God's called everyone in this room, everyone in this room and everyone in our city to some of the same things. Some of the same things. First of all, we're all called to repentance. So the first step of obedience is repentance. Repentance is seen that we've been created to find life in God, that we've rejected him, and that we're only living to die until we turn back to him. Right? That's the first step in the obedience of faith that Paul opens Romans, Romans 1.5, by, by pointing us to. He says that's the whole point of this letter, is bringing about the obedience of faith. That's the first step of the obedience of faith, repentance. But here's the thing about God, and this gets missed a lot in the Christian church today, unfortunately. See, God's not out trying to make a whole bunch of converts. God's not really frantically in panic trying to gather a whole bunch of people for his team. God's making disciples. He wants disciples. So that means that after you come to Jesus, after that first step of obedience, the obedience of faith, the call to obedience continues on. Right Now you're called to mature and to grow in Jesus every day of your life. In fact, for, you know, one example of a step of obedience that we're called to as Christians after we come to Jesus is abiding in God's word. Right? Jesus said in John 8, 31, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The inverse of that is if you don't abide in my word, you're probably not one of my disciples. So that's how important our obedience to God is. It, it evidences what's really going on in our hearts. Another worshipful act of obedience in discipleship is giving our lives to make more disciples. Right, that, that's implicit, that's, that's actually explicit in the call to discipleship is that we give our lives to make more disciples, to bring more people to obedience to Jesus. So, so we're really, we're feeling the premise of the text. Okay, we get it. We get the premise, right, in these first several verses. We have God's spirit in us. We're all ministers and priests of the gospel, and we're all called to bring a sacrifice, an offering of obedience to Jesus. 
what I want to do with our remaining time is again ask the question, how? How do we do this? How do we live in such a way that worship of God and obedience to Jesus marks our lives? Because here's the truth. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed this in my life. This does not come naturally. Obedience to Jesus, we, we, don't, we don't float into it. We really don't. I mean, from, if you've worked a lot with kids, I, I, I've, worked a, I've worked a bit with kids. You know that they're not naturally obedient. On the other end of the spectrum, I've also done a whole bunch of work with like senior citizens. Just so you know, we don't naturally grow happier as we get older. <laughs> it's true, right? It's, it's such a gift when you meet the, the, the older man or woman and they're, they're filled with joy. That's a gift. We love those people. Why? Because the majority of them are grumpy. We don't naturally, we don't naturally grow into sanctification. It, do, it doesn't naturally happen. And the Bible tells us that we are literally in the middle of a war. There is a war going on all around us, not just figuratively. This is real. There is a war that's raging to keep you from obedience to Jesus. If we're not actively fighting for obedience, we will comfortably and unknowingly be led away in our passivity. That's a big deal. That's why Jesus in Matthew 7 verse 13 said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Sometimes you have to ask yourself when you read Jesus' words, do you think he actually meant that? The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. That's a passive life. Right? I mean, that's what it is. That's, it's not saying everything about your life is easy, but it's saying you're not fighting for obedience. Jesus said, actually, the people who will respond to my call and enter by the narrow gate and the hard way of life because they will swim upstream every day to be obedient to me, those people are few. I want to be numbered with them. We're also told in Scripture that we have an enemy, an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Right? We have corrupt natures that continue to cling to us even after we come to Jesus, whose desires are contrary in every way to the desires of the Spirit. We live in a culture that functions by the wisdom of man and not the wisdom of God. We need to be reminded this morning, I want you to be reminded this morning, I, I want to be reminded this morning that we are not at home here. We're citizens of another city. We're strangers and aliens here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the people of our city desperately need us to show them that the life and the light that they're searching everywhere for is found only in Jesus. But hear me, they will only see that. We will only be salt and light once we are living our lives and our lives are marked by the worship of Jesus and Jesus alone. Until our lives are marked, brothers and sisters, by the obedience of faith, we will passively be led through the wide gate. 
So for the sake of simplicity this morning, let's call the obedient, worshipful, priestly life discipleship. Let's just call it discipleship so I don't have to keep unpacking the same words over and over again. I get tired of hearing my own voice too. Uh, and, and, and we'll look at a few, well, if you look at a few aspects of that discipleship, of being a disciple of Jesus, and then we'll respond. We're going to go through this quickly, um, only in the next few minutes. There's a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of aspects of discipleship here. I originally had seven, uh, and I've pared it down to three. We'll spend, we'll spend a bunch of time on the first one. The last two we're just going to hit really fast, so hang with me. The first one is found in verses 17 to 18 of Romans 15. Please have a look at that again. Paul writes this. He says, In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Okay. I want you to notice something about the Apostle Paul here. Now, he's already told us that the purpose of his life is to be a minister and a priest of the gospel of God and to present an offering to God. He's already told us that, but now he's backing it up. See, we're seeing just how devoted Paul is to the mission God's called him to, to bring about obedience in the people around him and himself. He says, I won't speak about anything except what Christ has done through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He's saying the only thing in my life that's even worth talking about is what Jesus does in it. That's the only thing I want to talk about. We're going to have a conversation. That's all I want to talk to you about. It's the only thing that I want to speak about. Look, this is all I have that's worth anything. Everything else I've ever had, I've counted as lost. I've got a one-track mind. I play one note. I'm interested in one thing. I don't have a lot of hobbies. This is it. That's what Paul's saying. That one thing is what I'm pouring everything I am and everything I have into. The ministry entrusted to me. Paul's passion for the gospel and the call that God had in his life absolutely consumed him. Consumed him. It engulfed his, the entirety of his existence. In fact, it drove him to his death. And it ultimately, it ushered him, ushered him into the presence of Jesus. Paul's call did that. So the first characteristic of discipleship that's jumping right out at us is that disciples of Jesus, please listen, are single-minded they're single-minded in their pursuit of obedience. Let me, let me just tell you on a personal level, I want that. I want what Paul has. I want to want Jesus more than I want anything else in the world. And I have my moments. I have my moments by God's grace where, where the gospel just breaks my heart. Where, where everything fades, sometimes it catches me out of the blue, I'll be driving or walking somewhere or whatever, and it'll just, it will strike me, everything in the world fades, and all, I'm just overwhelmed by the prayer, come Lord Jesus, all I want is to see my king face to face. I have those moments, but let me also tell you that much more often than not, I am confronted with a million other things that, that vie for my attention and that want my devotion a million other things, and I fail regularly and often to be single-minded in my pursuit of obedience. I go after other things on a regular and continual 
basis. Please hear me. This is not false humility. This is the truth. So let me throw the question that I've been asking of myself out there for all of us. What's your life about? Really? What is your life all about? What are you into? I'm speaking to Christians here. But because this is the story of the Old Testament. Right? Ancient Israel, God's people, they were constantly falling in love with the gifts instead of the gift giver. Right? And, and what did this look like for them? Well, well, disobedience for them looked like worshiping the gods of their culture. And I think we make the exact same mistake today. See, our city worships. We're good at worship. We worship everything. Man, we live in the promised land. We live in a spectacularly beautiful city. In a beautiful country, in a, in a beautiful province, in a free country, we have wealth and comfort beyond the dreams of ancient kings. We have so much, in fact, that it feels like, you know, God's put so much all around us, the call for us must just be to enjoy it. I mean, if God gives you 80 years by his grace, you will not even scratch the surface of the temporary pleasure that is all around you. And our city worships, man. We're good at worshiping. We worship everything. We worship mountains and trees and exercise and sports and food and beer and coffee and sex and image and prestige. You name it, we worship it. So again, what about us? What would the people around us say our lives are about? What's your life about? What if we asked somebody who's close to you? What if we asked your wife or your husband or your best friend or your child? What's dad into? What does dad love? Would he say Jesus? Or would he say something else? Now, this is not, this is not meant to guilt anybody. It's not. We're just trying to discern where we're directing our worship because we're always worshiping, the only question is who and what. So we're just trying to discern that together. So what's the answer? Is the answer then for us to, to worship less? To worship less stuff than other people? No. The answer is for us as believers to worship much more. For us to become much more passionate than the rest of our culture at worshiping. The answer is for us to train every ounce of our worship on one thing. One thing instead of many, Jesus. Every ounce of your worship needs to be directed to Jesus. That's how we become obedient to him. In the big things and especially in the small things, the everyday things, the moment by moment things. There's a way to be obedient to Jesus when you leave here and go to lunch. There's a way to be obedient to Jesus in, in the life that you live today, tonight. But your focus, your eyes have to be trained on him. Look to Jesus. The other thing we need in order to, in order to accomplish this is we have to know what, what he's calling us to. So let me ask you, what does obedience look like for you? Do you know? Do you know what Jesus is calling you to today? Has he shown you through his word what he's calling you to? Because Paul is very, very clear on not only his general call that we all have as believers, but also the specific call that, that he's fulfilling. So he was able to reject everything else and focus on that one thing. Drop down to verses 20, uh, 20 to 24 to see what I mean. 
to see how focused Paul was on his call, Paul writes this in verse 20. He says, And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope I see you in passing as I go to Spain. See, Paul was responding to the call that's on all of our lives to make disciples. But Paul was also responding to the specific call on his life to only preach the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. He was restrained by that call. He was restricted by that call for years. Paul wanted to go to Rome. Why? To see the call, see him? No. To build the church there, to strengthen the believers, to make disciples. It's what Paul wanted to do. Surely, I mean, if you can justify the good things in life, you can justify that. Paul wanted to do a missions trip to Rome for years, but he couldn't. Why not? Because it wasn't his call. Somebody had already preached the gospel in Rome. And thus, Paul had no business being there and he knew it until his work was complete. I just, I can't help but wonder how it would affect our city, how it would affect our lives if we were that confident and that committed to the call that God has on us. What would that look like? To be that constrained to the call of Jesus and I just think that that kind of obedience would be incredibly compelling in a culture that majors in mediocrity. I think to see people that passionate would, would change everything. All right, so that kind of ends the first section of our text. Remember 14 to 22, we've kind of overlapped that and run to the end of that. In it, we've seen our call as ministers and priests. That's what we've seen, that we're all called, and that to be a disciple of Jesus means to worship him with single-minded obedience. That's the first aspect of discipleship, single-minded obedience. Now Paul transitions to making a couple requests of the Christians in Rome, and as he does, we see two more aspects of what it means to worship Jesus as obedient disciples. We're going to hit these quick. Have a look at Romans 15, verse 24 to 27, where Paul says this. We see the first aspect. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they, also, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. What Paul is doing here is remind the Roman Christians that everything they own, everything they own belongs to God and has been given to them to steward for the sake of his church. He's getting really practical and he's telling them, telling them that those who share in an, in an eternal spiritual inheritance would never, would never hold back the temporary and material from each other. 
Right? I mean, it's an argument from greater to lesser. In other words, he's saying that the disciples of Jesus not only give all they are for the sake of obedience, they're not only single-minded in their obedience to Jesus, but they also give all they have. They give all they have. To make his point, he lifts up the example of two other groups of Christians who are doing well at this, one of which is the Christians in Macedonia. I love I love the story of the Christians in Macedonia. And we get more detail on the gift that they gave to the saints in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5. Let me read it for you. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Listen. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, single-mindedly to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. Listen, only by the power of the gospel and only by, because the power of the grace of God does a severe test of affliction pair itself with joy. Only by God's grace. And only by God's grace does, does extreme poverty, these are poor people, extremely poor people, does extreme poverty pair itself with a wealth of generosity. Paul says, in fact, they begged us for the opportunity to give to their brothers and sisters in need. It's like, it's like they gave a certain amount that was kind of expected, and then Paul and the others said, no, no, that, that's all no more. You keep that. You need that. You need to live. And they said, we beg of you, please take these things that God has given us to help our brothers and sisters in need. They shared in the spiritual inheritance, the spiritual blessing, so they would not hold back a temporary and material one. Why? Because they understood what Paul's saying. They understood exactly that. That when Christians are single-minded in their worship of Jesus, they're finally free to give everything for the sake of obedience. When our eyes are focused only on Jesus, our bank accounts become tools to use and not safety nets to build. When we want Jesus more than anything, the world will take notice of people who couldn't care less what money can buy, but who couldn't care more about the worship that it can express. This is our call. So let me ask you, how's your giving? Not how much are you giving. I don't want a number. I want to know how do you view what you have? Does it belong to you? Do you use it to build your own kingdom? Or do you use it like the Macedonians did to build God's kingdom? The second and final appeal that Paul makes to the Christians in Rome in our text, and our last characteristic, characteristic, that was interesting, of a disciple of Jesus that we'll see. That, that's a word that growing up in school I used to have a heart. I could never say characteristic. I don't know why. The last characteristic of a disciple of Jesus that we'll see this morning is found in Romans 15 verse 30. Please have a look at it. Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me 
in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Okay. When we pursue single-minded obedience to Jesus and see everything we own as a tool to make him known, we will be people marked by one thing, prayer. See, Paul's appealing to these disciples for their prayers on his behalf. He's asking for protection from those who don't know Jesus and acceptance from those who do. This appeal is nothing new. You know that. Throughout the New Testament, those in Jesus are commanded to pray earnestly, to pray without ceasing, to pray for those who suffer, to pray for the sick, to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other in them. The most natural place for people who depend on God and live beyond themselves is on their knees. It's the most natural place. It's home. It's home for a disciple. When there's nothing that matters more to us than God, then there will be nothing we enjoy more than going to him in prayer. When we see that the sacrifice of worship that we're commanded to bring God is completely beyond our ability. I mean, we fail all the time. Basically, without stop, we're failing at this. And you know what that does? It drives us to prayer drives us to our king, it drives us to our mediator, drives us to our high priest, drives us to our savior. When our lives are marked by a hatred of sin and a holy hatred of all that stands contrary to the love and the peace and the grace of God, we will enjoy nothing more. Nothing will bring you more joy than simply talking to him. Prayer marks the lives of disciples because a disciple can only follow someone he actually knows. Jesus said, my disciples will know my voice. My sheep will hear my voice. Do you know his voice? Do you hear his voice? Listen, if your life is marked by by prayer, by prayerfulness, chances are all this other stuff we've talked about, it's falling into place in your life. It's like the litmus test. However, if your life is marked by prayerlessness, we have to ask whether we really know our shepherd at all. Why wouldn't we talk to him? Why wouldn't we go to him? So how's your prayer life? Listen, God wants to change every one of us right now, including especially, I pray, I hope, me. God wants to change every one of us a little bit more into his likeness right now. He wants to draw worship and the obedience of faith from us. He wants us to leave here renewed with passion and joy to respond in the obedience of faith to the call he has on our lives to make disciples. That's what he wants from us. He wants more people in this city to come to know him and in his infinite wisdom he has chosen prayer as one of the primary means of accomplishing that work. If you're not yet a Christian, your call, the obedience of faith for you right now, is to look to Jesus. Don't look to me. Don't look to anybody else. It's to look to Jesus. To place your faith, your hope, your trust in him for this life and the one to come. That's where you are if you're not yet a believer. That's the step you need to take today. 
And for those of us here who are already in Jesus, you're priests and ministers of the gospel of God. You have an incredible inheritance waiting for you. Positionally, you are perfect in him and nothing can separate you from your God. If that's you, God wants to remind you this morning of the call he has on your life and that the offering you are to bring is an offering of obedience. Everything in your life, your family, your job, your money, everything. These are tools God has given you to worship him with. They're tools that he's given you to build an offering with. Use them. Worship him. The offering that you're bringing to the king, to King Jesus of an obedient life will require three things. Singleness of devotion, giving everything you have, and a life spent leaning on him in prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Thank you, God, for the way that you empower us in our weakness. Lord, we, we just need you in light of everything that's been said this morning, in light of everything your spirit's done in my heart, and I pray, I hope, God, the hearts of other people here today, we need you to speak. We need you to move. God, I thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. I thank you that we can lean on you. And God, in you this morning, we trust. And we leave these things in, in your hands, God, asking for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.